Now, last time uh, we were together, we uh, came down to uh, almost to the end of chapter 24. We got two verses left here. And uh, chapter 24 uh, has been a great chapter. I know all the chapters in the Bible are really good, and you can get a lot from them, but, you know, from where we're at as a church, from where so many of you are at in your own relationship with the Lord, I think it's just been some really uh, powerful things that God has shown us. And uh, we've been looking at the ministry uh, and the calling uh, for each of us to, to do the work of God. And how we as, you know, we mature and grow <clears throat> through the ministry that God gives us and what we do within our structure of our church here, we see in time exactly how, you know, we fit into God's plan. Very obvious to me and obvious to probably quite a few of you where you fit into this church. You're all unique. You're all invaluable as far as I'm concerned, even if you're not maybe where you need to be yet. I learned a long time ago, don't look and judge people on where they're at, but look at them and see where they could be. Instead of criticizing them from where they're not at, try to help them be what they need to be. And uh, I, I, I look at all of you, and all of you have something very special to, to bring to the table here in our church. And we were told last week, uh, as we saw that, that when we see the things around us and the things that God gives us, and we learn through the ministry of the things that we do, that we ought to consider these things. And as we consider them, and as we look at them and learn from them, then the Bible says that we are to take instructions from it. And then, you know, as we take the instructions and uh, see how we consider everything, we understand that the overall goal, the overall goal for our church here and everybody in it is to be planting a vineyard in the field uh, that we have decided to buy, which is Kansas City for us. You know, I've always, I've always loved the book of Jeremiah. He's one of my favorite guys in the Bible. I think the book of Jeremiah is one of the most incredible books uh, anywhere, not only doctrinally, but certainly historically, but from a practical standpoint. And in chapter 1, this is an incredible example of Jeremiah and the calling that God gave him and the fulfilling of that calling to uh, take it to God's vineyard, which was in the field that God had bought, Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses uh, 4 through 10, we find the commission of Jeremiah, just like we find the commission that God has given you and me. He had a job to do. You and I have a job to do. But there's a process to planting that vineyard. You don't just go out someplace and buy a farm and a field and then show up two weeks later and the crops are all ready to be picked. There's a lot of work that goes into it. And he says in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 4, he says, uh, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Our Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. You know, I always looked at that, and I always thought that's exactly a great example of how we see ourselves and yet how God sees us at the same time. 
Jeremiah saw himself as a child. Now, that's not a bad thing, but Jeremiah is saying a lot like what Moses said. I can't do the job that you've called me to do. I'm a child. And yet, God was looking at Jeremiah like he did with Moses, like he is with you, and he sees the finished product of Jeremiah. He sees what Jeremiah can do if Jeremiah will just follow the instructions that God is going to give him. You notice, he didn't say to Jeremiah, you know, you got to go out and find the Bible. No, no. He told Jeremiah here, we're going to see in a moment, that he actually took the words and put them in Jeremiah's mouth. He didn't have to look for it. In fact, when you look at this passage here, there isn't one thing Jeremiah had to do. <coughs> God did it all. All Jeremiah had to do was say yes. And so many times we make all the excuses in the world of why we won't do what God has called us to do. And I, I look at you just like that. I don't look at you as, as Jeremiah looks at himself. I try to look at you as God sees you. I try to look at you what you could be if you would just say yes. Amen. And that's just, and then he said, but the Lord said unto me, verse 7, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go uh, all that I send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Uh, then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in my mouth. Now the second thing I want you to see here, he didn't put the originals in his mouth. In fact, one of the things that I love about the book of Jeremiah, if you come through the book of Jeremiah, you'll find out that there were four sets of originals of the book of Jeremiah, and none of them matched. So this idea about the originals, you know, you got to have the originals. There's four sets of Jeremiah before Jeremiah even died, and, and none of them matched. And he didn't say to him, I'm going to put my thoughts or my ideas or my message. He said, I'm going to touch your lips, and I'm going to put my words in your mouth. See, I have set thee this day over nations and over kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build, and to plant. Now, our study that we're going to finish up today, try to put it all together for you, is on the aspect of you and me in this church building and planting a vineyard. That was Jeremiah's job. That's what God had called him to do. If you look at verse 10, it says, See, I have set thee over nations and over kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down and then to build and to plant. Now, there's a process to getting a field, buying it, and then planting a vineyard. And when you look at verse 10, I told you this last week, there's some things that you've got to do to clear the field before you can ever plant and certainly ever build. And he says here, and I want to look at these uh, four things that he talks about just for a moment as we move through here. And I want to show you uh, the, the New Testament application to it. Because if you're ever going to plant a vineyard, if you're ever going to build a church, if you're ever going to do what we're attempting to do here, this idea that you're just going to walk in and everybody's going to love you and everybody's going to flock to hear you, unless you're Joe Olstein, that is not going to work. <laughs> There's some things through a process of planting a vineyard that has to be accomplished before you and I can really uh, do what we're supposed to do. And the first thing he says here that we need to root out some things. 
Now, if you'd take that over to the New Testament, you'd find that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, that it talks about a root of bitterness. You're going to find a lot of God's people because they've had so many disappointments in life, so many bad relationships, so many problems and so many issues, that because they're so out of whack with everything, they actually believe that God did that to them or God caused that for them. They take away their own personal responsibility and in time, they get bitter toward God because they think that they got their short stick in life. I've seen things happen to people's kids that the parents blamed God for it. Got bitter toward the things of God because of the fact that they, 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 they blame God for what went wrong in their life. And of course, the first thing that has to be rooted out is bitterness. You've got to get rid of that. The second thing he says there is to pull down. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that'd be a reference in a New Testament concept of pulling down the strongholds in our life. When you put something in your life that controls you, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's pornography, whether, no matter what it may be, when you allow something to come into your life that controls you, that becomes a stronghold in your life. And there's only one way that you can get rid of that, and you have to pull it down. The third thing he says is to destroy. Now, we'll go back to the Old Testament for this one, but it's a New Testament principle we found in Joshua chapter 9, verse 12, where you have the story of Achan. And in the story of Achan, uh, Achan had what the Bible calls the accursed thing, which meant, and, and this was a great concept study on deception. Achan wanted to pretend he was right with God and everybody else, but he had things hidden in the tent floor of his tent, things that he wasn't supposed to have. And so when we do things that are wrong, when we do things that aren't right, the first thing we try to do is is hide them. And in Joshua chapter 9, verse 12, it talks about destroying the accursed thing. Whatever it is in your life that you have to deceive people with needs to be destroyed. Then the fourth thing, he says, to throw down. And that will be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, where it talks about imaginations. And everything that it exalted itself against the knowledge of God, you cast that down, you throw it down. You don't let it stand. Now, the process is simply this. First, if you want to plant a vineyard, you get preaching in the Word of God. You get helping with people. They'll come in with their issues and their problems. And you go through this four-point thing. There's some things that they have to root out. There's some things that they have to pull down. There's some things that they have to destroy. And there's some things they have to throw down. Once you get them to that point, and you know what? We all came the same way. Nobody walked in here ready to just plant. Nobody walked in here ready to just build. Every one of us at a point in our life before when we decided we were going to do what God wanted us to do and answer that calling, we had to go through this four-point process. You had to root out, you had to pull down, you had to destroy, you had to throw it out, and then you built it and you planted the vineyard. Most churches today, they try to build and plant without ever getting through these things. Pastor tries to teach them to a maturity. You'll never teach anybody to spiritual maturity. 
You only get somebody to spiritual maturity by getting these four things out, and you don't do that by teaching. May I speak frankly? You do that by preaching the hell out of them. Amen. Say you shouldn't cuss. Oh, that's a Bible word. I like using them words. <laughs> now, last week in the closing out of this chapter, we looked at some good, solid word studies. Word studies, I think, are great. And all you need to do a word study is a word, a Bible, and a concordance. And you can have a ball. Fills up a rainy afternoon. You know, it's, a, it's a good thing. Now, first of all, it says here that uh, uh, the, the, the field, we talked about that. And we, we saw how that the Bible defines the field in all of its, our studies as the world. And uh, then we saw the word slothful. Along with the word slothful, we saw a man void of understanding. And we know now that from our studies that this is a person who is undisciplined, unstructured, someone who has no real uh, stability with the Bible. Uh, he would be the foolish man of the book of Proverbs. Then we looked at the word vineyard, and I told you how that in the Old Testament sense, the vineyard will always be Jerusalem, but in the New Testament sense, for you and for me, it'll be that particular calling that God has called you to in the field that God has given you. Then we looked at the thorns and the, and the nettles, and I talked about how that thorns in the Bible are always a picture of sin that will keep you, stop you, cut you, bleed you. Then we looked at the word stones, and I showed you how the stones uh, in the Bible are God-made. They're not man-made, and they represent for us the building blocks of the Christian life, the principles, the great doctrines of the Bible. We took that word stone, and then we looked at the stone wall, and I showed you how that is the assembling of the Bible principles, the individual stones that build a wall of defense in your life that are basically your life is walled around by truth and Bible doctrine that nothing can penetrate it. And all of this has brought us down to the last two verses, which are uh, really, I think, a fitting ending for this chapter. But before we do that, uh, let's look at this, these verses in chapter 24, and let's just kind of do a short recap so we can put it all together. Let's, let's remember now what we have learned from chapter 24 before I put the, the capstone on it here. Now, so far in chapter 24, we know that and remember that the key uh, to this calling uh, is the ministry that we have. God called you to serve him. God called you for you to do something for him based on what he has done for you. Now that calling in the Old Testament, we know that it comes through a nation, the nation of Israel. But in the New Testament, we know that it comes through the body of Christ, the church. And, uh, and we know that, uh, uh, you know, uh, that uh, through these two venues, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, and the New Testament, the church, God wanted to reach the world with his message. And we know from earlier studies that in both cases, and in both the Old Testament and New Testament, the key element within God's structure to do this was the family. We have learned these things. The unbroken chain of God's witness down through, uh, down through time, through families uh, within God's structures, that mom and dad had the ability to guarantee that their children would carry on the legacy that God had given them. 
Now, this is what we have learned so far. In chapter 24, we were told in verse 1 and 2 not to be envious of evil men. And the reason for that is, is because the Bible says that all day long they study destruction. They don't want to build anything. They want to tear everything down. An unsaved man is not interested in building anything unless it's his bank account. He's not interested in helping you. He's not interested in doing that biblically and spiritually. He's interested in what will benefit him. And he spends all of his life developing and coming up with ideas that uh, at the end of the day will just be destruction for anybody that gets involved in it. We saw in verse 6 that we're to make our battle plans a sure one based on the models and the examples found in the Word of God. And we now know that to kind of draw that out a little bit to, uh, you know, to the men that God has put in your life and the women God has put in your life to help you do that. But we're supposed to get a sure battle plan. Verse 10 tells us that we did this so that in the day of adversity, we won't faint. And then he said in verse 13, we were, he told us that uh, we're to eat the honeycomb, uh, and when we do, make a steady diet of it, that that's where our eyes will get enlightened to really see what's going on around us. And remember, we used this great study in there of Jonathan and Saul, how that Saul would put them under a curse that they weren't allowed to eat before they went into battle, and he's blaming the people. Jonathan got a little bit of honey, and his eyes was open, and he says, my father's the one who caused these problems. Word of God in your life will open up your eyes to show you what's really going on. That's, that's what we learned. We learned in verse 16 that we were told that it doesn't matter how many times we fall. We just keep getting up, get back in the fight. So many of God's people want to quit today. They want to get discouraged today. And life can be discouraging and life can be hard, but you're supposed to be harder than life. And when you're harder than life, then life doesn't keep you down. You just keep getting back up. We were told in verse 21 how not to uh, meddle with them that are given to change. That God is absolute. God is, God's, God is a fixed God. He's an absolute God. He doesn't change in anything that he does. And that we get into the thing where we want to change the Bible. We want to change who God is. And we want to change all of the doctrines that have been the standard for hundreds of years down through history. We were told in verse 27 that we need to prepare for the ministry, the calling that God has called us to. In verse 27 also, we, we, we are, we're to grow uh, through this calling uh, that God will show uh, you for sure your calling and where you and I fit into what God wants to do. We saw in verse 30 that God will give you a field to buy. And also in verse 30, we found out that God expects us to not only buy that field, but expects us to work that field, to develop that field, and in time, plant a vineyard that will bear fruit for God. That was Jeremiah chapter 1. We saw in verse 31 that you and I are to build a wall out of the Bible doctrines that God has given us that protect us from everything that will come our way. Also in 31, we're to keep that wall in good shape. Keep the thorns and the nettles off of it, that it doesn't get all tangled up, that you don't tangle up the things of God with the things of the world. And then we saw in verse 32 that uh, you and I are to consider all of this, learn from it, and take instructions from it. 
that God gives us uh, through His Word. And I'm telling you, just breaking that chapter down like I just did is an incredible way to do any chapter that's got so much meat in it. And that's how you take those things, those things that I just gave you, you consider them, and then you take the instructions from them. And that's a recap of chapter 24, as it will apply to you and to me. Now today, I want to close out this chapter and, and, and look at these two verses that we can uh, put into a, uh, you know, a workable context of what we need to do uh, to receive the ultimate gore, which is a sure reward. And, and that's, that's what we're looking for. So uh, let's read uh, verses 33 uh, through 34. I'm going to read 32 on it just to put it, even though we did it last week, just so it all flows together. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instructions. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth, and thy want as an armed man. Eddie Ballou, would you stand up and ask God blessing on the service this morning for us? Thank you for being here today, you and your wife. Thank you. Now, within our study today, we, uh, we have a man who falls asleep on the job. Now, I can identify with that, and so will you in time. I know you young kids have more energy than you know what to do with, but I'm telling you, I'm looking at already, you older ones know where I'm going with this. The older you get, the tireder you get. And the more your naps become late, great lengths that you look forward to. And uh, it's just a process of, of, of getting old. But, you know, I'm not talking about that kind of a sleep. We all need sleep, and we all need naps. <laughs> naps are in the Bible. They are. They nap up in heaven. Yeah, the Bible says there was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour in Revelation. They were napping. Uh, but this asleep that we're going to talk about today in this chapter, it will be the slothful man of verse 30, uh, the man that's completely void of understanding. There's a difference between being tired and falling asleep and taking a nap physically than spiritually. And I want to talk about the spiritual slumber and sleep where Christianity is today. You know, there's a great illustration of this in the Gospels. And it's found over in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, things around starts around verse 38, go down through verse 46. And it's where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is right before he goes to the cross. Without a doubt, it is the most crucial time of his life and ministry. He's about to go through what we know as the agony in the garden. We know that name, but most people don't understand what that was all about. Here's where he's going back with his father and he's asking his father that the cup that he about to drink could be taken from him if there's any other way. Now, the neo-evangelical crowd and many of the Baptist crowd, they try to make this cup physical death. And they're saying that uh, Jesus didn't want to die physically, so 
uh, he, uh, he's asking the father that if he doesn't have to die, uh, is it okay for this cup to pass from him? And of course, if you know even a, a thimbleful of Bible, you know that we're not talking about physical death here. We're talking about the cup here being the cup of God's wrath, which was going to be poured out on him on the cross of Calvary. An evangelical can never get to that. Most Baptists can't get to it. They're so limited and shallow in their understanding, that's all they can ever figure it out. Well, we're not talking about the cup being a cup of his physical death. The cup that we're talking about is talked about in the book of Revelation, talked about many times in the Old Testament. It's the wrath of God's indignation poured out on him, and he drank that cup to the dredges on the cross of Calvary. But this is what he's going through. This is the greatest place in the Bible that shows you the human character of Christ with the godly side. And he's fighting back and forth, much like you and I do in a, in a limited sense with our flesh and our and our, our new nature and an old nature, though he didn't have a, an old nature as such. But it's, it's, it's a lot like that for you to understand it. The human man doesn't want the wrath of God to fall on him, but the God-man knows that he, it has to happen. And he goes back and forth, but the great key is, no matter what he wants, when he finds out what the will of the Father is, that ended the day. Amen. And that's a great lesson for you and for me. It's not about what you and I want. Amen. It's not about how you think your should life should go. Amen. It's not about the comfortable things in life versus the uncomfortable things in life. You know what it's about? When you really understand what God wants you to do through the obedience to the Father, He did it, and so should we. Amen. It's a great example. Without a doubt, this is one of the crucial times in all of the Bible in, in His life. And he says in verse 38, he saith unto them, My soul was exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry here and watch with me. And then as you read the story, and the story unfolds itself three times, he goes through this agony. And the Bible says that his, his sweat is like great drops of blood. That's the most intense time of his ministry and his life in the garden of agony. And three times when he comes back to them for encouragement or comes back to them to be with them, they have fallen fast asleep. And verse 40, he says, as he looked at them slumbering and sleeping while he is going through the most crucial time in his life, he says, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? You know, I don't know how much you know about the Bible. I don't know how much you really want to know about the Bible. I know some of you really do. But I've always looked at that. And he says, he did that three times. And I know in the Bible that there's two ways to document the second coming of Christ. There's a seven-day period to do it, 7,000 years called the seven-day system. That's one way to do it. The other way, which they use for the New Testament, the Old Testament runs 4,000 years, and the New Testament starts the 5,000, 6,000, and then the 7,000, which is a three-day system. And when I saw this years and years ago, I realized that I was reading more than just the agony in the garden. I was reading what Proverbs is saying, what other verses we're going to look at today is saying, that Jesus is going through an agony 
and he goes three times to his, his, his disciples who were supposed to be watching and waiting and ministering with him, and they're fast asleep. And to me, that's always been a picture of the church age. The most crucial time in our life is the time that we live in, and most of God's people, just like the apostles, are fast asleep. And those three days represent the last 3,000 years of the church age ending in the millennium. And it clearly shows that the apostles didn't understand the urgency of where he was going through. And I'll tell you something else. The reason why God's people are asleep today is because we don't understand the urgency of it either. I hope today that in something I say will we'll turn that light on in your life. I hope it will make the, the switch over, the change over from a life of just snoozing your spirituality away to seeing of where you're at in relationship to Christ's coming. You know, I think that's really the key. And I think that's the greatest missing element maybe outside the Word of God today in Christianity. Nobody understands where we're at in the urgency of our hour in relationship to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're living our lives like we're going to live forever. We're living our lives like He isn't coming back. We're living our lives and preparing our bank accounts, buying this, buying that, and nothing wrong with any of that as long as it doesn't supersede what God's called you to do. And we're living our lives like Christ has forgotten all about planet Earth, and we're just going to have to muddle through down here, so let's get all we can and then can all we get and hold on to it. And today God's people are, are so sound asleep and have no clue of what's actually happening all around them today. I'd say that probably in all of church history that God's people today are the most unprepared for the Lord to come back. We have got so many things in our world, so much clutter, so many bad choices that produce such anxiety, such problematic lifestyles, such problems with our children, problems with multiple marriages, problems with, with everything in society. And because we have no understanding of who we are, where we're at, and what God is doing, we just get in the game of life we, like a volleyball between the world, the flesh, and our devil. We're batted back and forth over the net of life, and nobody ever wins. We know now that the field is the world in Matthew chapter 13, verse 28. We've talked about that now for a number of weeks. And in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 and 25, where he talks about the great parable of the sower, he says, Another parable put he forth unto them, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man that sowed good uh, seed in his field. And that's a picture of the word of God being sown good seed. And in the Bible, there's a good seed and there's a bad seed, and it's defined for you in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And he's saying here that here's a man that goes forth uh, sowing good seed in the field, the world. But verse 25 said, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now, tares in the Bible and wheat in the Bible are people. The wheat in the Bible is always defined as saved people. The tares in the Bible are always defined as unsaved people. 
when the Christ comes back at the second coming of Christ. We've talked about this in People Ministry and Bible Institute. Certainly talked about it on Thursday night from time to time. That threshing machine that Christ comes back on. A threshing machine like a farmer would use to thresh his wheat. And the second coming of Christ is like, like it to a threshing machine by which God threshes out the wheat and separates the tares, unsaved, from the wheat. And he clearly tells you here that the tares, while men slept, I could take you through history today and history of the church and, and name those men who were fast asleep. I knew some of them. I could walk you through and show you how the Christianity crossed its hands across its chest, nodded off, and never woke back up again. And today, God's people are so sound asleep, they have no clue of what's going on, and they're totally unprepared. They're happy that they had a new baby, but they're unprepared how they're ever going to get that baby saved. They're happy that they've got a new job, but they're totally unprepared of why God even gave them the job in the first place. They're happy about everything that they have in life and the good things that happen, but they don't understand in the context of how it all fits into the plan that God has for them, how they fit in with it. And he says, while men slept, his enemies came and sowed tares. And what we have here through history is a picture of the devil, the tares being unsaved people, the wheat being Christianity, how the devil brought the unsaved people in among Christianity and destroy them. We've talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This will be the neo-Orthodox crowd, this will be the neo-evangelical crowd, and this will be the charismatic crowd who came in the tares among the wheat. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, the next verse down here, or a few verses down here, and Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, not only did you have the tares in the wheat, but the tares, when they came in to infiltrate the wheat, brought in leaven or false doctrine which destroyed it. The great example of this is the nation of Israel at the coming of Christ, how that God intended for them to be a a vineyard that was going to bear fruit. The tares and the wheat came in, the false doctrine came in, and it destroyed them. And Jesus, at the first coming of Christ, walks out in, in the Gospels, and he sees the fig tree. And that fig tree is a picture of the nation of Israel, and it's a fig tree that is barren, that has no fruit on it, and he curses it. And we can take that same illustration and put it into your world and my world in churches of Christianity today. God called the church to be fruitful. God called God's people to be fruitful. He's got a job for all of us to do, and it's to bear fruit in our vineyard. But just like the nation of Israel, churches today are barren. Christians are barren. Bad doctrine from very bad people. It always bothered me, and again, it shows the lack of complete, total disregard of understanding anything, but it always bothered me how some of God's people could be so enthralled and so caught up and so impressed with somebody who teaches the Bible and you could spend hours and hours listening to them, buy all their books, buy all their tapes, follow them, uh, go to their college, or go to their school. When at the end of the day, that very same person is the one guy who wanted to take the very words of God out of your hand. That always bothered me. 
our job as, as New Testament Christians and our job as a church is to have understanding and realize what God has called us to do and then stay awake and watch and minister with Him instead of falling asleep. Again, the Bible is filled with great illustrations of this. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, you have a great story here that goes way beyond just what you read here. As most of the parables do that, and most of the Bible does. But let me read it for you, and then I'll show you what you got here and how it fits into what we're saying today. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder. Now that man that is a householder will be God. Went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now let me just say this to you. When you got saved, you agreed for a penny a day to go into his vineyard. That was the agreement. This is why I'm so adamant about what I say about most people. Most people who claim to be saved today in the day and age we live in are probably not even saved. If you win somebody to Christ and you don't explain to them that the reason why they're getting saved is not because they can get their wife back or their husband back or their kids back or they can get a good job or they can get this. If you don't explain it that the reason why they're getting saved is because they're making an agreement with God to go into his vineyard. You miss something. You know why so many of God's people get saved and never do that? You know why? Because nobody ever told them that's why they got saved. You thought you got saved to put your marriage back together. You thought you got saved because you wanted to be a better person. You thought you got saved as a kid because you wanted to, your brother and sister got saved. No, no, no. You should have gotten saved because of the fact that you saw your personal sin debt as a sinner, and you know you could never get out of that personal sin debt, and Christ died for you on the cross, and then him dying for you was your agreement that you would go to work for him in the vineyard for a penny a day. You say, a penny don't sound like much. Well, then you've missed the whole concept about taking an investment and compounding your interest. God came to the Lord one time and he says, Lord, he says, what's, what, what's a million what's dollars like to you? And the Lord looked at him and said, well, son, he said, a million dollars to me is just like a penny. The guy thought about it in a minute, and he says, Lord, can I have a penny? <laughs> That's the way we are. We, we want everything for ourselves. We want everything that's going to make our life comfortable. And the truth of the matter is, when you got saved, you entered into an you supposed to enter in an agreement to go to work in a vineyard for a, for a penny. And then you take that penny, and through the work of the ministry, you compound that interest by making good investments, and you wind up at the judgment seat of Christ with a million dollars. It's just that simple. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. And again he went about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle 
and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day long? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. And he saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right ye shall receive. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyards saith unto his steward, Call the laborers, and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. Now this is one of the greatest illustrations anywhere in the Bible that goes way beyond the story. And you know as well as I do that there's a depth to the Bible that most people would never see. And chapter 20 shows us that the church age being laid out from the time that Christ showed up at the first coming of Christ right up to the rapture of the church. You know, I think it's absolutely imperative and invaluable for every child of God wherever he lived in the seven periods of church history to understand, to be totally effective, to understand what the issues of his day was. When you come through the book of Revelation and you see the seven periods of church history and then you know a little bit about history, you can actually see from history what every issue that every period of the church had to deal with. Early on, they had to deal with the resurrection, true. Then they had to deal with the deity of Christ. Every major doctrine that we hold sacred today has been questioned, thrashed out, and dealt with by the church of Jesus Christ down through history. And in doing that, every child of God who was a bona fide child of God in a relationship with God and the Word of God knew where they were at and what their job was in relation to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ or the rapture of the church. And it's invaluable for you and me today to understand what our job is, what is the issue of our day. And not only the issue of our day, but unlike any other time in the history of the church, the urgency of our day. Chapter 20 shows us the church as being laid out the time in God's, uh, God's day, the church age, as he sends us into uh, the vineyard to work down through church history. Now, here's how you do this, and it's not very complicated. Well, you have here, you have the morning. That will be 6, eight. this is a 12-hour day, from 6 in the morning to 6 at night. Notice it's not a Jewish story because the Jewish story would be 6 o'clock at night to 6 o'clock in the morning. Now, this is the Gentile story, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., your regular work day. And you have the morning, he talks about, that'll be 6 a.m., then you have the third hour, then you'll have the sixth and the ninth hour, then you have the eleventh hour, and then the Bible says that even comes, that'll be 6 o'clock or the twelfth hour. Now, here's how you do this little thing, and it's not hard. And somebody that's an evangelical listener to this, you'll probably laugh at this. And some of the Baptists out there say, well, yeah, I, I just don't know. I know you don't know where I'm getting it. That's because you're an idiot. And we rejoice this morning that God has hid these things from you. Amen. So I get it. Don't, don't reveal yourself by saying, well, I just don't know where he gets that. You know, it's called a Bible. The B-I-B-I-L-E, -E, the B-I-B-I-L-E, you know. Now, we know the church age runs 2,000 years, approximately. We'll say 2,000 years for a round number. 
God can slow it up or make whatever he wants to do. But we're given that time element in the Bible, 2,000 years, two days of a thousand peace, the third day being the millennial reign of Christ. We know that we got a 12-hour day here. So even I can do this without a calculator. I just take the 12 and divide it into the 2,000. If I want to find out what these hours represent in history of time, then when I divide 12 into 2,000, I come up with 166.6666666 number all the way down, 167 years. So that means that in my story here, every hour represents 167 years in history. Now, if that's true, and it is, and we put the morning, say, at Exodus or uh, um, Acts chapter 20 with the church at Ephesus, that would make the third hour, according to our system here, around 500 A.D. or the beginning of the Dark Ages in history. The sixth hour would bring us up to around 1000 A.D., which would be the middle of the Dark Ages. The ninth hour would bring us up to about 1500 or the beginning of the Re uh, Reformation. And the eleventh hour, the hour that he's talking about here where the last workers would end before the twelfth hour would be around the year 1837. That means that you and I, if, if I may infringe upon your delicacies today, that means that you and I, according to God's clock, are in the last minutes of the last hour before he comes back. Now, Christians laugh at that. The neo-evangelical crowd, and yeah, I'm looking at you here, bud, uh, you laugh at that. Most Baptist preachers that uh, uh, couldn't find their way out of the Bible if their life depended on it, you'll laugh at that. And yet, I've got to tell you today, many times you know that the, un the unsaved world has no truth. The unsaved world has no salvation. But sometimes the unsaved world is actually smarter than most of God's stupid people. Because God has clouded their minds and taken uh, of the saved people because of their rejection, where an unsaved man may not be able to know what he does with the truth, but he can still find some truth. You know that the whole unsaved world in the scientific world, in the, in the world that looks at the world scenario, you know that they understand and know that the end is coming pretty quick. Now, they don't look at it as the Christ coming back. They look at it as some global destruction, like the meteor that supposedly killed dinosaur, the dinosaurs, <laughs> like the like the like the comet that slammed into the earth and put us into a, a, a winter nighttime for a thousand years and everything died. They're looking at a nuclear attack that somebody's going to send rockets over here. We're going to send ours over there, and we're going to obliviate the world. They're so afraid and know because everybody knows there's something wrong. Whether you want to pump yourself up and think it's okay, everybody wants to, uh, looking for the silver lining in a dark crowd and wants to think that it's getting better. Anybody with any sense knows that nothing is getting any better. And in Chicago, Illinois, right now as I speak, in Chicago, Illinois, unsaved men of the Scientific Securities Council in Chicago, Illinois, have had since 1947 a doomsday clock. Google it. 
They've had it since 1947 that somebody decided from 1947 on that things were going to get worse and was going to end in some disaster. Really, 1947, you mean when the nation of Israel became a nation? Really? When they got the alien bodies down in Roswell? Really? Why 1947? My goodness, there was a lot worse going on in 1937. Or even 1927. How about 1917 with the war, the war, War One that, uh, that that devastated billions of uh, millions of people's lives? Why did you pick 1947 for an unsafe world to put a doomsday clock up in Chicago, Illinois, that all the catastrophic events that happen in the world move that clock one step closer, one tick closer to 12 o'clock? even. And in 2018, right now, me and you, two minutes to 12. And you think, I made that up. You're laughing at that. When there's unsafe people who are going to die and burn in hell who are smarter than you are, Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine. Woo, 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 woo. You'd have to see the three students to understand what I'm doing. <laughs> I grew up with the three students. You and I are the last part of the last minutes and God's hour before he comes back. And the whole unsaved world, the unsaved world, the unsaved world is telling you, you got two minutes left. And your response, <laughs> yes, I am amazing. I just cleaned out my sinuses and made a great point in my message. Two birds with one stone. And by God's own clock, the last workers went in in 1837. That starts the 11th hour. And we're way past that point at this point. And the unsaved world knows that some catastrophe is going to... They don't know what it is. They don't have anything biblical. But anybody that's got any sense can look around this world and know that we have, we have raped and abused and ravished this world to the point where she's got no more to give. Something's going to happen. Mankind has got to the place where everybody has got nuclear weapons. Somebody said one time, what do you think about all the nuclear weapons? I said, oh, I'm not worried about it. Why not? I said, I know something more dangerous than a, a nuclear weapon. What is that, the Word of God? He said, how do you mean that? I said, I don't know any country on this planet that outlaws nuclear weapons. I can give you five countries that outlaws the Bible. That's a powerful book. And by God's own clock, the last workers went in in 1837 by God's own system, if you follow the system. And we are supposed to stay awake and be on the job. And when we don't, the devil will come in while men slept and bring in tares among the wheat who will bring in the false doctrine, the leaven, and a little leaven will leaven a whole lump. There you are. Thank you very much. 
while men slumbered, hands across their chest, fast asleep. And the leaven came in with the tares, the bad doctrine from the bad people, and destroyed the field and the vineyard with his seed, the devil's seed, Genesis 3.15. Paul said in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. You know what he's saying? Your salvation is Jesus Christ. And he's saying you better wake up because Jesus Christ coming back for you, your salvation is nearer now than the day you got saved. God's warning, wake up! Don't be a sluggard. Don't fall asleep. Don't get caught up with the, with the, with the, with the, the tares and the wheat and the false leaven doctrine. And our job as a keeper of the vineyard that God has given us, our job in the field that God has given to us is to consider all of this, take instructions, and know where we're at in a relationship where Christ is coming, understand what our issue is today, and then with every ounce of strength that we have, fight that, go against that, and hold the line with it. We got a calling, a job to do, a ministry that should take pride over everything that we do. And you know me, I'm not some guy suggesting that you never have any fun, you don't have anything, you can't live in a nice house. That's not me. You know where I'm at, you know where this church is at. But what I'm saying is, with all that we have, with all that we do, with all the fun that we have, with all the goofy stuff, Marcus getting his credit card. Michael Riddickus is my man. We never lose sight of the mission God has given us. We got a calling and a job to do, a ministry that takes priority to everything. And we're not to sit around as God's people and whine and complain about everything. And boy, God's people do. I, I, if, I, I put up with a lot of things, my patience is endless. I'll put up with somebody that's got an alcohol problem. I'll, I'll stay with them till ever. And if we can't die, then we'll go out and drink together. I'll, I'll stay with them forever. I, I, my patients are unending. But I want to tell you, I have limits to some aspects of it. And in the war that I'm in, and the battle I got to fight, and the battles I've had to fight, I'm going to tell you something. I don't have any time for whiners. I can't stand whiners. I, I just can't. I mean, uh, always, you know, always whining about this, all, all this or that, always blaming their issues on somebody else. Always come to the place where, you know, they're always, uh, they're always saying, well, you don't know this and you don't know that and you don't understand. No, no. The problem is I do understand. The problem is I understand too well that you've got a God in the Bible that you want to live above the circumstances and because you're living in a dream world and you're asleep half the time of your life spiritually, all you can see is yourself and what you have. I don't know if you know it or not. Now, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. 
Just give me a minute here. No, no, no. Just give me a minute here. Okay. We got some heroes in our church. Right in our midst. Men who are, and women too, but not maybe at this point in time, but, but men who are examples of, of, of what I, I would want to be. You, play, you whine and you complain about what you don't have the little piddly things in your life. Let me ask you a question. Anybody want to trade places with Sam? Got terminal cancer. The night he was, the night he was diagnosed with it when he came to Bible study, some of you were there that night, other ones you had other things to do. I get that. He raised his hand, and it wasn't for, what, what am I going to do? It wasn't how, you know, uh, what can I, uh, you know, how you all pray for me and anoint me with oil that I'll get healed. You know what his prayer was? He says, I just have been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Can you tell me tonight how I can put in my life the right things to meet God the right way? Why, if that was you and me, we'd be whining ourselves all over the place. We'd be going from person to person trying to suck out sympathy. Well, you don't understand what I'm going through. You never hear that from him. Never hear that from him. And yet, terminal cancer, they just put him into a special treatment that he's going through to try to undo what's going on in his body. And you know what? He's had chemotherapy. He's had round after round. The other day, he had 10 hours of infusion. And he had, he couldn't come to church for three days, and he called me on the phone, letting me know that he wouldn't be here. And with his, with his cancer, with his terminal cancer, with all that he's got, with all that he's struggling with, with all that he's going through, he never misses a Sunday morning, he never misses a Thursday night, he doesn't miss anything. Now, you want to whine about what your problem is? Why don't you trade him? Why don't you trade what you're whining about and get some real problems? And I didn't say that. I, I watched him sit in here and sit back there and get up to go to the bathroom, and he's so weak and he's so sick that two ushers have to help him back to the bathroom. You're looking up here. I'm watching what he's going through. And he never misses anything. You know why? Because he loves that book. He loves his church. He loves the Lord. And God has made a difference in his life. Amen. He doesn't whine about it. He doesn't complain about it. You don't see him moping around about it. He just comes and does what God calls him to do. And yes, he's out on restart when they go down there. Jeffrey. Blind. Has his little white fold-up stick. Can't see anything. But I'll tell you what he can see. He can see more than most God's people can see. He can't drive. He wants to be at Institute. He wants to be here for people ministry. He wants to be here Thursday night. There's no way he can get here. And you know what? It ought to be a privilege for you to hitchhike off of his reward to the judgment seat of Christ of getting him here to be what God wants to put in his life. And yes, blind, can't see, can't drive, can't go anywhere without that stick. 
or somebody leading him, and he's here every time the door's open, and he is into every ministry doing it. If the Iron Man, he can't run it, you know what he's going to do? He's going to lay in a stretcher and let two of you carry him down because he wants to be a part of what we do. You ever hear him whine about it? No. Ever hear him complain about it? Or bitter at God because, because he's blind? Ever see Sam be bitter at God because he's got terminal cancer? What is wrong with us? In the very midst of what we have and what we do and all God has given us, he's given us example after example of men and women who will take what the world gives them, take the short end of the stick in life, not whine, not complain, and stay in the work because they know God called them. And you and I got the same calling. You're too busy. You're sick. You got a family of eight or nine and a kid on Sunday morning wakes up with the sniffles. The whole family stays known to blow his nose. The heroes of the faith are not defined when everything is right. It's not defined when you get a big income tax check come back. It's not defined when you get a promotion at work. It's not defined when you get this, you get that. It's defined when the world goes to hell around you and the doctor report comes back. Are you in or are you out? If you're a whiner, don't whine to me. I'll get you some cheese. Have it with your wine. Listen, the great principle of Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 through 8, the great principle, and get it, the great principle is not what time did you go to work in the vineyard. The great principle is when you went to work, were you on the job? Our job is to stay wide awake and to watch with him in the most crucial time in all of history. To keep that field clean. To keep that rock solid wall up. And the song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 15 says, Keep out the little foxes that despoil the vine. And to keep that stone wall and that field intact. Keep it from falling down in your life and my life. And yes, as Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 32, and keeping the enemies of God out of it. He said, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. He said that to the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. We just studied a couple Thursday nights ago telling you that there's dangers without the church and there's dangers in the church. 
And sometime you can sneak my Bible and look at Acts chapter 20, verse 29, you'll see the list of names. Because he said, remember. Now, as you grow, as you mature, as all of you are, and get into the ministry, and God grows you through it, and as you build your wall high, your high tower, like last week, you'll see some things in ministry and around you and in dealing with people that you will consider. You'll take instructions from through the Word of God. But unfortunately, God's people today are sound asleep when it comes to the calling of God has for them. No clue where they are in their relationship with Christ and the impending judgment of seed of Christ, which is right two minutes away, according to the world. Those who have no understanding of the urgency of our hour in which we live. Jesus made reference to this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, when he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. I, I read that. I know what he meant by that. I can read between the lines. In church history, the two most important times were the first and the last, where it started and where it ended. You know, in your Christian life, it's the same thing. The two most important times is when you start and how you end. You want to get a good study in the Bible? Study the church and study the devil's first attack and then study his last attack. See the church at Ephesus, milling fully purpose, and the church at Laodicea, which means rights of the people. See where it started and see where it ended and then see how it got there. And the greatest responsibility of God's people today in Christ's church is to stay awake. Because on the altar of ministry, we have the greatest privilege of all time to offer ourselves in the last moments of the last day to take our stand and hold the line of truth in a Christianity that's in total apostasy. Now, I make no apology for where our church is at and what we stand on. No apology whatsoever. I've told you many times I'm looking for a few good men, but I'm not looking for everybody. I'm looking for men like in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, that God was looking for in their dire time, and that is a man that will stand in the gap and make up the hedge. And not everybody has cut out to hold the line that we need to hold. I mean, it's just truth. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're not going to heaven. It just means that that's who you are. I, I, can, find, I can find normal Christians a dime a dozen. I'm not looking for normal Christians. I'm not looking for people who just do what they're supposed to do because that's what they've been told to do. I'm looking for men and women who understand where they're at in relationship to Christ's coming, understand the urgency of this hour, and will not fall asleep and will wait and watch and work for Him. I mean, I get it. And there are, there are a dime a dozen today. It takes a certain kind of man and woman to take your stand today in the midst of your family, your friends, the people and pastors and churches, because the criticism is going to come down on you unbelievably. And most men and women today do not have the steel and their backbone to take their stand. They need to be in a milk toast church, that mega church concept, where you can sit and hide with no real accountability. That if you go to a church like this and you miss three or four weeks, somebody's going to say, hey, we missed you. Where were you? You go to those places, you could be gone for a hundred years and nobody would know you weren't there. You like that. You like that. You like going to a church 
that you can you have all the nice little things going on around you that you can stop and get your little latte on the way in. Be amused and entertained with the rock band up there singing about Jesus. And smoke and fire coming out of the altar and everything just, you know, you're thinking, oh my, God is here. God is here. You like that. You like that soft soap message where it never offends you. That they always tell you how nice you are, how good you are. My God, you could kill a hundred people and go to church and they think you were wonderful. You like that. You need that. You thrive on that soft, cushy, milk toast, baby filled atmosphere. The spiritual three ring circus with the pastor as the lead clown. Or, 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 or those little disastrous churches where the pastor couldn't preach his way out of a wet paper bag. He's totally void of understanding. Churches that are all built on another man's foundation all across this country, and they're filled with nothing more than the rejects from truth. They never grow. They never go anywhere. It's all just a pretend amongst the wishy-washy, not offending teaching, never preaching, that becomes a spiritual nursery filled with babies. But I'm telling you, in all this mess, God will always have his remnant. And they're spread across this country, little pockets here in New York, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in California, in Colorado, every place out there, God's got these little pockets of men and women and churches and Christians that are holding that line. God will always have his remnant who will stand on the book and do it by the book. Who in their last moments of the last hour will recognize where they're at and realize greater than any time in history, you better wake up. Your salvation is nearer than when you believed. They don't fall asleep. They'll get it done. It's the difference between a work of God and a work that is simply for God. You know, I, I read this and I preach this and I'm so reminded this week as I was putting this together of the book of Nehemiah and how that Jerusalem was completely destroyed and how after 70 years captivity, God through Cyrus sent a small remnant back to rebuild the city. At a ne Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, Nehemiah is told to rebuild Jerusalem, God's holy city. And in that passage, he goes down by night, by night, by night. Picture the church age. He goes down by night and sees the utter destruction of God's city. Nebuchadnezzar had come down in 606 B.C., utterly gutted and destroyed it. Unbelievable, unprecedented. What was once God's great place to teach all the world the truth of God is now lies in waste and is desolate. It's a picture inspirationally of today 
and the institution of the church that God had planned to take the truth to the world, which today lies desolate. And I want to read this real quick here before we close out today. And it's Nehemiah, and it's his thoughts as he surveyed the city of God, God's structure for the Old Testament. And I might add, it's my thoughts today as I look around and survey God's structure of the church today. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon's well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain, and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook, and viewed the wall, and turned back, and entered by the gate of the valley, and so returned." The rulers knew not whither I went, nor what I did, neither had I yet told it to the Jews, nor to the person, uh, priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest of the world. Then I said unto them, you see the distress that we are in. And that's what I've told you today. All I've simply said in this message and asked you, do you see the distress that we're in today? Do you see the distress that you're in today? How Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Do you see the church today, how it's destroyed? They don't even have a Bible. Over in Europe, they don't have a God. They're all atheists, even the pastors and the churches. Over here, we still have a God. We just don't have a Bible. We're only a short step behind them. He goes down, and he sees this city by night, picture of the church age, and everything is in disarray. Everything is destroyed. Everything has been burnt with fire. The city of God by which God was going to take to the world has utterly now been destroyed. And he goes to the people around him, and he says, you see the mess we're in? Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we may no more be of reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that were spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. That's where we're at right there. We're going to rebuild the work the way God wants it to be. And God has brought men and women into this church and have strengthened your hands for this good work. While the rest of Christianity is asleep, while the rest of Christianity is in a mess, God has raised up a remnant here and across the country and little pockets of resistance of men and women who understand the urgency of the hour, where they are at, and what our job and our calling and what our vineyard and what our field is. And together we rise up, strengthen our hands for this good work. We don't sing the songs, we do, but onward Christian soldiers anymore. We don't sing Sound the Battle Cry. Those are too warlike, too warmongering. Christianity is a kind of passive, sissified, effeminate concept that wants nothing to do with supposedly anything that is violent. 
And yet the very men who try to take the Bible from you are the most spiritually violent men you'll ever meet in your life. And yet I look at us in these last days, and I look at us in military terms, because Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation, and we were told to endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And a good soldier follows his orders. In the first century, God gave them their orders. In the second period of church history, God gave them their orders. In the third one, God gave them their orders. In the fourth one, God gave them their orders. In the fifth one, God gave them their orders. In the sixth one, God gave them their orders. And for you and for me, God's given us our orders. We form a rear guard action. We hold the line of truth in a world that wants no truth. We do what is the dirtiest job in the military that every commander, every corps commander, every regiment commander, every division commander, it never wants to hear the order that comes down from the top. A rear, door, a rear guard action means that you are, you are surrounded and your whole army is going to be cut off and wiped out. And they want to escape so they can. So you know what they do? They look down and they pick, if it's division, they'll pick a regiment. If it's a regiment, they'll pick a battalion. If it's a battalion, they'll pick a company. If it's a company, they'll pick a platoon. And what they'll do is they'll have a regiment of 10,000 men who are trapped. They'll take a, or a division of 10,000 men that are trapped. They'll take a regiment of 3,000 men, and they'll say to those 3,000 men, you stay here, and you keep the enemy at bay till all these other people can get out and fight again another day. Because if you don't, they're going to come down on us, and we're going to lose the whole everything. So we're asking you 3,000 men to stay and fight and hold the line so we can escape. Now know this. There'll be no help coming. Know this. There'll be no air support. Know this. There'll be nothing. You are a rear guard action. You are going to sacrifice yourself so others may get out and fight again another day. And if it's a division, then you leave a regiment. If it's a regiment, then you leave a battalion. If it's a battalion, then you leave a company. If it's a company, then you leave a, a platoon. And they sacrifice themselves holding that line so the others can get out. And God has called us and given us our orders. We're to hold the line. We are the rear guard action in these last moments of this last hour of Christianity. It's you and me who must stay awake, must hold the line, must fight so people can still get in and get saved and still find the truth. If it's not with people like you or people around this country, these little pockets of churches and pastors with men and women who love that book, if it's not men like you and men like them, where will it go? This whole world will get swallowed up and there'll be no truth left in the last moments before the Lord comes back. And I can't speak for their other pastors. I can't speak for their other countries or their other cities, but I'll speak for this one. That won't happen here. We will hold the line. It's not going to happen. We've got enough men and women who have strength in their hands that will take the stand, and we will hold out in the last moments, in the last seconds of the last hour before the Lord comes back, because that's what we have been mandated to do. And we will take our stand, and we will not fall asleep. He won't have to come to this church and say, I wish you could have walked with me one hour. He comes around here. He'll see us on our post, on our wall, manning the gates, because that's the job God's given us to do. Well, I'll hold up there. We're done with chapter 24. We'll pick up chapter 25 next time.